It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me right here, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hello. How are you? I'm great, Mike. How are you? I'm, I'm happy to hear you're great. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about today. We're going to talk about something cool Byron Buxton did today. We're going to talk about Marco Estrada's injury maybe affecting his spin rates. Uh, we're definitely going to talk about how to measure defense and the Cubs defense because I think it's going to have a big impact on Kyle Hendricks and his uh, potential Cy Young candidacy. And then our favorite producer, Danny Wexelman, is going to bring us some audio that she recorded with Cubs rookie pitcher Rob Zestrizny. One of these days I'm going to get that right. Rob Z, let's go with that. Uh, but no, it was really cool. He was interesting, and Danny did a great job with that. So let's get right to Byron Buxton. Uh, we've got a lot of interesting stuff going on in the world of StatCast. One thing I want to talk about very quickly, this happened just like an hour or so ago. Byron Buxton had a triple, and he looked amazing doing it. He made it from home to third in 10.83 seconds. That is the third fastest home to third time of the year from a right-handed hitter. Guess who's got the first two? Byron Buxton. It's Byron Buxton. And I I know we talked about him on on our most recent show, but he just continues to show that he is the fastest, let's say, right-handed hitter in baseball. I know everyone wants Trey Turner. Uh, I, will, I will hear arguments for Billy Hamilton. I like, I'm on the Byron Buxton train. Yeah, the thing about uh, Buxton that I like when you watch him run, particularly when you see him hit a triple, when he gets that first to third when he gets going, he doesn't look like a baseball player when he's running. He looks like – he's like he has long stri- – he's galloping. Yes. He's, he's fun to watch. He is fun to watch, especially since in 14 games since uh, his return – 407 on base, five homers, 10 extra base hits. Uh, the Byron Buxton introduction to the show brought to you by our favorite listener, Bob Sacramento, who has been a very pro Byron Buxton on the show. So thanks for listening, Bob. We appreciate that. Uh, I think we also need to talk about Marco Estrada because there was some news that came out today uh, reported by our own John Morosi. He's been pitching with a herniated disc in his back since mid-June. Uh, and he went on the disabled list for a couple weeks in July because of the back. And there's no secret that he has not been as effective in the second half as the first half. Second half, 547 ERA, 460 slugging against. In the first half, 293 ERA, 332 slugging against. Was an all-star. Now, it shouldn't surprise anybody that a pitcher pitching through a back injury is probably going to have a hard time you know, making things work. But for Marco Estrada, I think it's it's particularly interesting because we know he is a guy with a high spin fastball. Doesn't throw super hard. Throws a high spin fastball high, which we know gets you uh, swinging strikes and it gets you pop-ups and it gets you poorly hit fly balls. I wrote a couple months back that he was on pace to set the all-time lowest batting average on balls and player record. Now, that's not going to happen anymore because he's been getting lit up all the second half. But before this news came out today, I think a, a couple of days ago, I looked at this, his spin rate had dropped on the fastball. And I think we've talked about it before that you can potentially look at stuff like that and not say for sure that the guy's hurt, but it certainly shows you something's up. Like we saw this with Wade Davis before he went on the disabled list uh, a couple months ago. Well, with, with Davis, it was more about velocity, was it not? Uh, well, with, with Greg Holland last year, it was velocity and spin. They both fell apart and then he blew out his elbow. With Davis, the velocity actually wasn't that different. It was the spin that looked very different. And there was at least one report that a team wanted to trade for him and saw that and said, we don't want to trade for him anymore. So if that was my fault, I apologize. But we know the teams can look at this stuff on their own, too. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, particularly for a pitcher like Estrada, who relies so much on spin, seeing this kind of trend is certainly eye-opening and suggests that, you know, that whatever happened to his back was affecting 
his release, his mechanics, something that sort of gave him that extra rotation on the ball. Yeah, and so when I tweeted those numbers out, uh, I think there was a good question that came back, which was, how much is significant? So his numbers had been about 24-20 as far as RPMs go uh, you know, in May and June, and then down to about 23-80 in July and August. Now, that's not a huge number. Well, it doesn't, see, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, seem like, like a huge, huge number. number. But you have to remember, it's not really from zero, right? Because nobody's throwing it from zero. The major league average is about 2,200. So there's maybe a the, the gap or the distance of how many RPMs actually matter. It's not all of those. It's just like the number in the middle. And I would say for Estrada, he is a guy who kind of has always lived on the edge. He, he might not really have had any to lose, right? Like if anything costs him that movement, because then he's just throwing 88-mile-an-hour meatballs. And that's a problem for him. Yeah, for sure. And But – the one thing you noticed yesterday was that his spin was a little bit back it, up. Yeah, well, it was a uh, twenty-four forty on his spin rate yesterday, which is basically his average for the season. And he did strike out seven and five innings. I know he still got gave up a couple runs to Tampa Bay there, but uh, that's a sign of hope. Yeah, and one of those home runs was one of the flukiest home runs of the year. Kevin Kiermeyer sort of front-footed what looked like a changeup, had an eighty-nine mile mile per hour exit velocity, which was the seventh softest home run of the year, and it was like eighty-nine. I forget what the launch angle was, but I know the, the combination. It was the first ball with that combination to go over the fence this year. See, this is why I listened to the show, because I learned something. I didn't know that Kiermaier had hit the ball so softly. I remember I was watching it. I was standing in the Dodger clubhouse here, uh, the visiting clubhouse at Yankee Stadium, watching that and going, wow, that ball didn't look that hard off the bat. I wonder how hard it was hit. Now I learned something. It is rare to see a home run uh, below 90 miles per hour, but it, it happens. In it's, fact, yes. someone, someone actually asked me the other day, like, you know, it seems like, you know, does exit velocity really matter on home runs? Isn't the band pretty narrow? Actually, it's not. On home runs, the band is actually about 30 miles an hour. We've seen as low as 87 and as high as 117. And actually, one of the interesting pieces of inf- uh, research that Tom Tango has done has sort of shown that there's a certain point where it's harder, an exit velocity where it's actually harder to hit a home run, where you get almost get diminishing returns because you have to hit the ball so flush on your bat to get it to 120 miles per hour that you lose any chance of getting any loft or backspin on it. The, hard, the hardest hit ball of the year at 123, ground out double play. Exactly. By, by, by of course, John Carlos. By of course, John Carlos. But so anyway, so it actually does seem like the ceiling on a home run is about 118 uh, miles per hour. That's basically what we've seen in two seasons of uh, of Statcast data. So John Carlos Stanton hits the ball too hard to hit home runs. Basically, that's the takeaway here. Not all the time, obviously. But anyway, back to Estrada. He's someone who's very interesting to watch for his last couple starts of the season because obviously the Blue Jays are very in a very tenuous position right now, and they they need him to be what he was. Yeah, they're basically playing contenders from here on out, and they're you know they're now in this I think in the second wild card spot. They, they lost nine of their last twelve coming into today. And uh, that's not great for them. <laughs> no, it's not. They don't really have a starting pitcher. Even Jay Happ, you know, you know, they have a starting pitcher. You put on the, the mound, you're like, okay, well, we're good today. This guy's pitching. I, I would support Aaron Sanchez, but. I guess, but even he, he's someone who's not going to go deep in the game. No. So that's, yes, but even with him, you're thinking, okay, we're still going to need at least three innings from the bullpen. Fair enough. Uh, let's move on to defense, because I think everybody loves to talk about defense when it comes to StackCast. Uh, you know, we mentioned Tom Tango, who's, uh, who's our friend and colleague, and he's the one who's really coming up with a lot of the cool data that supports this. And he came up with something uh, that sort of t- t- teaches us how we're going to get to better defensive metrics, and I thought it was really interesting. If you look at right fielders, uh, through the course of, of, I guess I'm not entirely sure if it's this season or, or both StackCast seasons. But anyway, what we have here is approximately 75,000 balls hit to the right field area across all of Major League Baseball. And uh, if you think about how many of those matter, right? And think about there's a... Matter in terms of measuring defense. Well, right, right, right. But I'm saying are, are interesting, right? How many of those are 
easy, easy outs. Anybody could get like any competent major league outfielder should catch a big portion of those. I could probably catch some of those easy pop flies, right? And then there's the the other section where they're guaranteed hits. There's these low line drives or crushed off the wall in the power alley. No outfielder should be expected to get to those. And then there's some, you know, they go to right field, but they're actually, you know, it's like right center and the center fielder ends up catching them. This is these three areas comprise 96% of all balls in play to right field. And, you know, it's not that they don't matter, but they don't tell you anything, right? They don't tell you if an outfielder is good or not. For the purposes of evaluating defense, 96% of balls hit towards right field or noise. Yes, total noise. So that leaves 4% of those balls in play. It's something like 100 to 120 balls per team, depending on how many balls in play. Per team per year. Per team per year. To each outfield position. To each outfield position, right. And so, you know, well, actually, I'm not entirely sure. I I have a right field here. Maybe it's more to center. I guess I don't know off the top of my head. But, and obviously that'll change based on if your pitching staff allows more balls in play or strikeouts. And I assume that'll probably fluctuate from year to year too, just based on the randomness of that. I think 120 is essentially the average. Yeah. So that's 4% of batted balls. And that's, that's kind of the opportunity space. That is where you are paying these outfielders to be, you know, above average, or that's where you're suffering on those balls. And it's interesting. So we took four of the best right fielders that we have here. And I think these, these names aren't surprising. Adam Eaton is a great right fielder. Jason Hayward, despite the fact he can't hit, is still a great right fielder. Mookie Betts. Uh, Peter Burgess may be a little bit surprising. He's been he's been quite good. And if you look at those balls that are hit to them in this opportunity space, they allow a 284 batting average against, right? Not that high. Yeah, they can't. I mean, essentially, they're converting 72% of them down. Exactly. That's a good way to put it, too. Now, we took uh, four of our, our, our lesser notable right fielders. Maybe I don't need to, to say all the names, but you can probably guess. Yes, one of them is Matt Kemp because that's the first name everybody thinks of. And then three other right fielders who are, are far more known for their bats than uh, for their gloves. On those same kind of batted balls. Well, we can say the, we can say the names. Okay, I was trying to be diplomatic here. Matt Kemp, J.D. Martinez, Mark Trumbo, Danny Santana. Bingo Santana. Bingo Santana. Sorry, excuse me. <laughs> But yes, obviously Mark Trumbo exists because he crushes home runs, not because he's an elite defensive outfielder. Same for these other guys. So we said our first group of four very good outfielders allowed a 284 batting average against. They converted 72% of those balls to play outs. These four guys, 485 batting average against. So that, basically 50-50 proposition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, and that's, that's 200 points of batting average on these plays between the very good guys and the very poor guys. And that, that is where their money gets made. And it's really interesting to see. Like, that is a considerable amount of outs. And remember, these are... These are fly balls, so often these mean extra base hits. I mean, some of them are bloopers that fall in front, but we're not we're, for the most part. These are fly balls, many of which will end up doubles and triples. Yes. And so when we talk, I mean, this is interesting for a guy like Mark Trumbo, and this is sort of why he gets into these. He's the kind of player who becomes very divisive because obviously he's having a great year at the bat, forty-two home runs. Um, but I think his WAR is like one one and change. Because yeah, he's either DHing or he's playing right field. I mean, that's kind of always been you. Know, Kemp, he's going to have thirty homers and hundred RBIs, and he's going to be a replacement player. I mean, this was. I mean, uh, Joe Sheehan wrote a piece about this recently, comparing uh, Buxton and Trumbo, who basically have the same WAR this year. Buxton and Trumbo. Yes. And wow, wow, <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't. I did not see that, but that's amazing, especially because Buxton's been playing so well lately. Uh, I don't think that that's the way a lot of people would view. Well, well exactly. Buxton. And this is sort of what you know. Obviously, in the in the in the past with defensive metrics, it's been very kind of, um, and, to, and to a certain degree, still is kind of like you know in the in the black box, and you just sort of have to to trust it. So at least what we're able to do with Statcast is sort of show a little bit more of what's going, how the sausage is made. And you know, one of the one of the ways we do this is with sort of what Tango was doing, where he's comparing, you know, he basically takes a compares distance covered to hang time with the ball. That's really what he's doing here with the, these comparisons when we compared Eaton and Hayward, uh, et cetera, to Kemp and, and Trumbo. It's 
distance covered versus hang time. This isn't even about positioning because it's really about how far they had to go regard to make the play. Yeah, and I think that's the one thing that uh, that we have that nobody else has, which is that you know we've got the starting points for uh, the defend- defenders, right? Because you don't really know how far a guy has to go if you don't know where he started, and that is so much more important than ever with shifts, right? Because the guys are not starting in the traditional left field, right field, center field spot. So anyway, that is what's really, really exciting. And um, I think what, what, what Tom is, is really saying is we're going to be able to hopefully get to these answers sooner. It's not going to be we need three years of sample size. You know, like we can, can kind of say hopefully in a matter of weeks or months, these guys are actually really good outfield. Yeah, because well, what he can basically say is like, you know, there, there are these types of plays and it's almost like a it's a signature significance kind of thing. It's like once this guy demonstrates he can make this type of play, it sort of puts him in a bucket of good outfielders. Like, oh, yes. he can travel 100 feet in less than five seconds. Well, hardly anyone can do that. So if you can do that once, it's basically a skill that you have. Well, th- and that's very cool. So we talked about this with Addison Russell when he made that amazing play. If you remember, I think it was against the Pirates a couple weeks ago. And uh, he went pretty much straight towards the left field line and made this incredible diving catch. So he ran 106 feet for the ball. Now, that's cool, but... If the ball was up in the air for 20 seconds, big deal. I can do that, right? He ran 106 feet for the ball, but it only had a 5.4 second hang time. Now, that's the furthest any shortstop has gone under 5.5 seconds. So I think that's the context that makes it cool. Like you said, is knowing the distance and the hang time. And then the third level, which we're not quite to yet, uh, at least in an easy way to measure, is the direction. Because yeah. obviously, it's a lot harder for a guy to go 20 feet back than it is to come 20 feet in. Uh, so that'll kind of be uh, the next phase. But it's cool. Like, yeah. We're making progress in all this stuff. So speaking of Addison Russell, speaking of Jason Hayward, the Cubs defense, all right? Now, I think this is really interesting because we're getting into Cy Young season, and a lot of people are talking up Kyle Hendricks. As they showed, Kyle Hendricks has had an amazing season. Let me throw some numbers at you here. Kyle Hendricks, we're going to use fielding independent pitching, and if you don't know what this is, it's really the measure of the three true outcomes. It's a strikeouts, walks, and home runs. It's the three things a pitcher can control. doesn't worry about defense. It doesn't worry about the bullpen or the, you know, the order things happen. Last year, 336, so it's on the, on, on the ERA scale. So that's a pretty good score. This year, 337, identical for all intents and purposes. He's not really striking out more. He's not really walking less. He's, he's doing exactly the same thing. I mean, this is actually one of my favorite stats of the, the Cy Young comparisons is that I think right now the leaders for NL Cy Young are Max Scherzer and Kyle Hendricks. I think Bumgarner's in the conversation. Syndergaard and Fernandez are on the outside of the conversation. But to me, if season ends today, Scherzer and Hendricks would be one too. Max Scherzer has 100 more strikeouts. 100. 100. 100. <laughs> 251 strikeouts, I think I yeah. saw Scherzer has right now. So I think I'm that's... Sorry, maybe it's 99, but it's... It's, it's close. Yeah. Uh, but the point is... It's not close, but yeah. the point is that they do it in very different ways, right? Scherzer dominates. Yeah. Kyle Hendricks, but this year and last year, as far as the three true outcomes, has not changed his game at all. Now, Kyle Hendricks' ERA last year, 395. Kyle Hendricks' ERA this year, 203. It's almost literally cut in half. And I think that says a lot, I think, about ERA, what it measures, because it, it really, that proves to me, not that Kyle Hendricks isn't great because he's doing very well, uh, that shows that ERA doesn't ma- measure a pitcher so much as the entire defensive run prevention unit that includes all the guys behind him. And what's interesting is that like you could easily see someone saying, like, well, what if he's like really good at pitching to the shift, which theoret- could theoretically be a skill. But the thing is, the Cubs don't really shift. Despite Madden's reputation for shifting a lot, the Cubs are not really one of those no, teams. No, they don't. They really they, they do not shift that much at all. And I mean, Hendricks specifically, he, uh, he uh, is really, really efficient at preventing exit velocity in the, the quote-unquote danger zone. Whatever I defined this as when I wrote about it a couple weeks ago, like between 10 and 30 degrees, he's like the lowest exit velocity in that range. So he doesn't give up the barreled balls, right? And that's important. But you look at the Cubs' defense, and I guess compare the Cubs last year this year. Starting rotation with the exception of John Lackey, 
basically the same, right? You still have Lester, you still have Hendricks, you still have Arietta, you still have Jason Hamlin. The defense has changed a lot, though, because last year they went into the season. Starlin Castro was their shortstop. That was the way up until August, and then they got, you know, Addison Russell moved from second over to short. And then now, obviously, they've got Jason Hayward and Ray Field instead of a combination of, like, Coglin and Solaire and Kyle Schwarber playing in the corner outfielders. I like some of those guys, but none of them are really great defensive I'm, I'm interested to know what the how the narratives of the – I mean, I'm sure the Cubs are still in the division – what these numbers would look like if Kyle Schwarber had been playing 140 games in the outfield. Maybe not, as we discussed before, maybe, you know, with only 120, like, p- chances to, to make a difference, it wouldn't have been much. But it definitely, I think, would have had an impact on the uh, overall performance. Probably true. But it, it's interesting because when you look at the Cubs, without question, they're the best team in baseball. They're the most complete team in baseball. We've been talking about Carl Edwards for a couple of weeks. Their bullpen looks great. The offense looks great. We have, uh, we have a stat here. If you look at over the last 100 seasons of baseball from 20, uh, 1917 to this year, that's 21 or 2,180 team seasons over the last 100 seasons. They are tied for the lowest ERA minus. Now, I'm going to explain what that is in a second. But what it basically means is that they are tied with three other teams for the best run prevention above league average over the last century, right? And if you think about it, ERA, ERA minus, it makes a, a lot more sense. that It's not as complicated as it sounds. What it basically means is that if 100 is average, then 74, where they are, is they are 26 percentage points above league average for that year with park factors included. So this year they have a 307 ERA, NL average is 416. They are considerably above that average because the point is the run run and, environment changes. And to look at the other teams on this list. Oh, they're great. They're I mean, great. It's one team from the 1944 Cardinals. Oh, that happened to be during you know World War II. Um we have the 1926 A's, the 1939 Yankees, arguably the greatest team of all time, or most dom- I should say most dominant team of all time. No one, the only team from even remotely recent vintage is the 93 Braves, which is the first year they had Greg Maddox, for those of you I w- who... I will say, if I had pushed this, I have like the top 10 here on our list. If I'd pushed it to the top 15, last year's Cardinals would have been on the list, too. Interesting. And as I remember, it wasn't so much because of skill or defense. They just were unbelievably clutch in the biggest situations, which, as we know, is not a skill. It's a thing that happened. It's not a thing that necessarily will happen. But it's very interesting. Obviously, Hendricks leading in ERA, John Lester, who has not been dominant from a strikeout, from a, from a strikeout walk or home run perspective, I think has a 2-4 ERA. So... I'm sure that has some effect on the psychology of a pitcher knowing, hey, I've got this amazing defense behind me. I, I don't have to nibble. Yeah. You know, that definitely definitely helps. But to me, if I were voting, that would hurt Kyle Hendricks' scion case in my eyes. I, I think you have to factor it in. You have to factor in how much is the team around him helping. And I think without question, his Cubs defense is really, really helping a guy who does not strike out a lot of guys. And not to take anything away from him because he's been great. Speaking of the Cubs, this is something interesting here. As we said at the top – uh, our our producer, Danny Wexelman, who is wonderful and makes this show uh, sound as good as it does, went to San, uh, St. Louis and met up with the Cubs, and she actually talked to Cubs rookie pitcher Rob Zastrinsky. See, I almost got that right. Rob, Rob Zastrinsky. And uh, he he's actually not a big name, but he's only allowed one earned run in his first 11 innings. I mean, he's got a shot at being on that playoff roster, I think. Maybe. With, with a performance like that, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good start, right? Yeah. He's, you know, uh, He was, uh, as I remember, the first pitching uh, draft pick of the Theo Epstein era to make the big leagues for the Cubs. Oh, very cool. So that is cool for him. So anyway, Danny went out there, and uh, she talked to Rob uh, about a bunch of stuff. You know, transitioned from being a starter in the minors to being a reliever in the majors. He does actually strike uh, struck out more batters as he's progressed. His strikeout percentage went up from AA to AAA to the big leagues, which I thought was like, that doesn't happen. And uh, because I found out that his first two games were at Coors Field, 
I had to beg Danny to ask him about what that was. So uh, Danny did a great job. Please uh, enjoy listening to her talking to Rob Tushwizny about uh, all the stuff that goes into being on the, on the Cubs. So when you're a starter, you wake up in the morning and you, uh, you kind of just enjoy your day. You eat whatever you need to eat to get ready to start. And, uh, you know, you kind of do exactly what you need to do. And when you're in the pen, you have to be ready every day. So you're always watching what you eat. You're always watching how much you sleep. Whereas the day before I start, I make sure I get eight hours. I wait, wake up and eat breakfast. Now I have to make sure I get eight hours every day, wake up and get breakfast. And, uh, you know, I get my adrenaline pumping in the 8th, 7th, 6th inning, which is right around 10 o'clock now, which is crazy because before at 10 o'clock I'm wiped out exhausted because I've already thrown six innings. And now it's I'm about to throw in the 6th, 7th, 8th, and if I don't, you know, I just kind of get the adrenaline going for no reason. So I go in there and eat, and then I lie in bed for three hours. <laughs> my adrenaline pumping. Well, I've come out long relief twice, and then I've come out for one inning four times or three times, and uh, so they've kind of used me in every situation. That's kind of how I went in with my mindset was I'm going to be ready for any situation at any given time. So if a starter starts struggling, maybe throws 30 pitches in an inning or something, I start stretching out just in case, or uh, they usually give me a decent heads up. They've been really good about that because they know that I'm new to this, and I can't get ready in two minutes anymore. Like. I'm a starter. It takes me 30 minutes to get ready and start days. So they've done a good job of giving me almost a full inning to get ready and stuff. But there's been two or three times it's been, Rob, get up, go. You're going in and two hitters. And I'm like, okay, I got this. I'll go do it. Awesome. Okay. So your strikeout percentage this year has gone from 19% in AA to 23% in AAA to 28% in the majors. How have you managed to strike out more guys at a higher level? I think it was – I threw a lot in the zone in the lower levels. Like I've always been a guy who would go out there and pump strikes. And in the lower levels, they're swinging at everything. So I'm getting at bats done, first pitch, second pitch, and I'll have a 2-0 count or something, and the guy will be swinging. Whereas here, they'll take until they get what they want. And uh, if you can throw what they don't want, you, you can get them to two strikes pretty quick. And uh, in AAA, I was pretty fortunate. I had some good catching with Tim Fedorovich and Taylor Davis. And, you know, they kind of worked around what the hitter could do, and I, I was able to throw to what they couldn't do instead of where in double I felt like I had to kind of throw what I could do. You know, I could only pitch to what my strengths were, and then in triple I kind of developed, and now I could start throwing to what their weaknesses were. So tell me if this, uh, this is your first year of throwing the cut fastball? Yes. Okay, so, and you've allowed one hit on it so far? Here? In general? Yeah. <laughs> I think here? so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's what we have. So. So you're learning this new pitch. Just talk about the process of how that works. And um, were there pitchers with good lefty cutters that you looked to to, uh, to like mimic after? Actually, when I first started throwing it, I watched Travis Wood and how he used it. And I haven't told him this or anything, but uh, he kind of uses it early in counts and late in counts. He, he has a multiple uses for a cutter, which I find fascinating. A lot of guys only have one use. And he uses it to get ahead. He, he uses it to uh, get into advantage counts and stuff and uh, I watched him throw it a lot and I've always been able to get through a fastball throw it to glove side pretty well and so I was throwing a bullpen one day in advanced instructs which is I guess just instructs <laughs> uh, they call it advanced to make us feel good but uh, 
I was throwing a bullpen. I was like, well, what if I just kind of get on the side of the ball? And the first four or five times I threw it, it wasn't very good. It was just shooting way too far glove side. And then I started aiming it a little more left, and I started being able to throw it in the zone. So I messed around with it for about a month right before the fall league. And then in the fall league, I told the coaches and the coordinators, I was like, hey, I'm throwing this. And so they were kind of skeptical at first, and they saw it, and they're like, all right, if you can control it, go do it. And so I threw it all in the fall league, and then this offseason I kind of tinkered with it a little bit and started throwing it back door and front door. And, I mean, talk about the effectiveness of, effectiveness of it, too. You're not just throwing it for balls. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it's a good pitch to start in the zone and run out. But every now and then you, you can start it out, away and run it in and kind of miss a barrel, which is kind of what I've been using it for a lot here is like maybe a 2-1 count or something, throwing a – cutter that starts on the bottom of the zone and runs out to get get some weak contact and uh, that's kind of how I'd use it in AAA and that, that was how I was, have, I was able to have success there. I can tell Travis, yeah, I'm going to walk in there and be like, hey man, you might hear this, but I watched you a lot on film. It's not weird. Don't worry, okay. Uh, okay, so you weren't in Major League Camp this spring, um, so is this your first chance uh, working with the Cubs coaching staff and what changes, recommendations have they been giving you? Uh, well, my first 20 minutes I was called up, uh, Basio walked up to me and was like, hey, we're going to go outside and work on your pickoff move right now. And I was like, okay. And he uh, he worked with me a little bit on holding runners a little bit better because a lot, a lot of guys run, run up here. In the minor leagues, you got two guys per team maybe. But here it's like four or five guys in the lineup at one time that can run. So uh, we kind of worked on that a little bit. But uh, Basio talked to the minor league camp, I think, two spring trainings ago, and I kind of got the vibe of who he was as a coach. And uh, so when I got here, I kind of had the idea. And uh, I would have liked to go to big league camp and work with these guys, but it was also kind of cool to come in fresh. Like, they don't know me, and they kind of let me do what I do here. And then they work with me on that, which I thought was kind of nice. And do they, are they providing any scouting reports as far as, like, statistical data goes? Like, in the stat cast there, obviously, like, everything has changed. Yeah. Yeah, we, we go over reports on uh, every team the first game that we come in and play. And uh, in the minor leagues, it's like he will chase or he's fast, kind of the extent of it. Here, it's like he'll chase in this count, he'll run in this count. And, uh, you know, it helps you out because it gives you an idea of what they're trying to do. And so it kind of gives you an idea of what you should do to counter that. Are you looking at heat maps? Uh, I haven't gotten any, but I'm sure the starters do. I mean, I don't know who I'm going to face when I come in. I could face the lineup twice, or I could face three guys or one guy. So, you know, I, I haven't really looked too much in depth on it. But they're re they're really helpful in the minor leagues. I, I, I used them for when, when I started. Cause, yeah, because it, it was three times through the order. Like, the first two times, you can kind of work your way through it. But the third time, they know what you're, you're trying to do. And so you kind of have to go to their weakness the third time. So if you don't know what they can't hit, you don't know what to do. Is that you looking that up, or is that your No, they, staff? they had it for us, yeah. So uh, your first two major league appearances at Coors Field. Everyone talks about Coors Field, right? Um, so did they tell you what to expect when you were there? Um, what to change? Anything about pitching at higher altitudes? Uh, we played in Colorado Springs twice okay. in, in AAA. And uh, the first time I... Uh, yeah, yeah, and so uh, the first time I threw a ton of cutters because everything was moving a little differently, and then uh, the, the second time we went through, I made, made a couple adjustments. I threw two or three bullpens. I had the series off, 
but I wanted to get used to it just in case. And then sure enough, I make my debut in Colorado, which was awesome. But the craziest part was this the brand new baseball feels different in my hand, plus the different atmosphere. So my first three days in the big leagues, I had no clue if I was doing anything right or like, uh, the ball was moving funky. I was like, is this how it moves all the time? And all the guys were like, don't take any stock into what happens here. He was like, if your cutter's backing up here, it might not in L.A. And sure enough, like I was throwing a cutter, and I would either throw it way too far glove side or it would back up on me in Colorado. And then I got to L.A., and I was throwing it, and it was exactly what it was in the minor leagues. So I was a little bit of relief there. Oh, yeah. I have a huge amount of respect for the guys who throw at Coors Field or even the guys in Colorado Springs. Like, It's just depending on the day, everything's different. Like, You could throw a ball and your two-seam runs so much you can't control it, and then other days it doesn't move at all. Like, It's crazy to throw there, but it kind of gives you a respect for those guys who have been p pitching their whole careers there. Okay, so, uh... It's useful for me because it gives you the, the confidence to go out and do what you need to do, and uh, I think the biggest thing for me this year is my first two years in the minors, I kind of did what they told me to do, and I didn't truly believe in it. I was like, I, I'll try it out, see if it works. And then uh, this year, I kind of believed in everything that I was doing, and then it makes you confident in what you're doing. So it's just like with the cutter thing. Like, if I didn't have confidence in myself or what I was doing, there's no way I could just teach myself a cutter. And so I tried it, stuck with it, and... Uh, the men mental skills help helps you with that because you can kind of just go with what you're doing and have confidence in it, and that's something I didn't have the first two years. So obviously, doing well uh, playoffs conversation. Everyone's talking about it. So has anyone mentioned anything to you, or has any conversations come up about that community? Uh, it might be a surprise to you, but I mean, we're not really talking about that at all. Like we're we're we're, we're trying to clinch, and we're we're trying to play games and win, and. My whole mindset when I got called up, I even told the coaches and everybody that was in the room when I got called up, I was like, I'm going up there to help. Like, whatever I can do, like, put me in any situation, I, I'll do it. And uh, I, I still feel that way. If I don't make the roster, I don't make the roster. But I know I did everything I could to help this team win games, and that's just what I'm going to continue to do every day. Well, thanks, Danny, and thanks, uh, Rob Sushasni. That was really interesting stuff. I think it's cool when you kind of talk about, uh, you know, the Cubs have this mental skills program, which is cool. And I don't, I don't know that every team has the that. The Cubs are definitely on the cutting edge of everything. Any any marginal advantage they can gain, they're they're looking into it. Yeah, I think that's fascinating, and you're absolutely right. That's one of those things that it's not very visible in the public eye, but I totally buy that. It makes a difference. So that's been our show. Uh, this is the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello here with Matt Myers. Thanks for listening. We will catch you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it 
in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.